Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Harleen Kaur Mann with us. Harleen is an astrodynamics and SST specialist with Okapi Orbits, which is a German SaaS startup offering collision avoidance software for satellites. Harleen has a background in aerospace engineering and is almost done with her PhD as well. So let's dive in and listen to Harleen talk about all her research. Welcome to the podcast, Harleen. Thank you, Rachna. I'm very excited to finally talk to you. Yeah, likewise. So your current role, your title at least at Okapi Arbit sounds so interesting. So can you talk about what you do? Yeah. Uh so I mostly work on orbit determination but uh orbit determination using GPS so it could be precise orbit determination but also the initial orbit determination using uh let's say some observations uh optical observations or otherwise so that is something uh some uh, that is something for a new project uh because i was working with the optical observations before when i was in bern so we have for example the angles from the optical observatory and we use uh, the right ascension and the declination angles to compute the initial orbit of a satellite or a space debris so i'm doing something similar at the moment but i'm also working on uh, collision avoidance and generation of maneuvers so yeah it's a lot of new stuff and yeah exciting wow that that sounds so interesting i'd love to go a little bit deeper into that uh but before that so you're almost done with your phd at the university of bern uh, in switzerland right so yeah. can you talk about your uh, research and what your thesis is about uh yeah my thesis was about trying to make the initial orbit determination more precise uh at bern uh we get observations from the zimmerwald observatory uh which is let's say the second most busy observatory in the world uh and it's a big thing considering the weather in switzerland so yeah we get uh the angular positions uh using the telescopes there and uh using those angular positions i tried to compute the initial orbit so we already had some existing methods but i was trying to add perturbations in the initial orbit determination which was really really hard considering that we do not have uh let's say analytical models for each and everything and i was also looking especially at the high area to mass ratio debris objects uh where the solar radiation pressure uh has a higher impact so i was trying to add some iterations of um numerical propagation uh using solar radiation models so that i could at least take care of some perturbations and at least my results told me that we need that if we want to recover an object after one or two days when it's a geo object how exactly do you start about estimating the whole trajectory thing because what from my limited knowledge i know that we have something called the tles which are published by norad Mm-hmm. and there's also a bunch of uh, terrestrial radars that also track a lot of the space objects uh, but again there's a limitation on what the size of the space object you can be tracking you know we can't be tracking millimeter sized things of of course yeah. it's so far away so so these are the different data sources and of course the university of braunschweig has also been doing it for a while can you like walk me through this whole process so you have these data sources and then what happens uh so we have all these data sources radar or optical uh, uh telescopes and then we have uh let's say the data sources give us the angles or ranges depending on the type of data source if we have radars uh that will be something for low earth uh, orbits uh up to gdos which are like the transfer orbits between the low earth orbits and the geotrans uh geostationary orbits so for the leo orbits we get the ranges and the angles uh using radar and if we have two types of observations or let's say a series of those observations so we get three two angles and one range and then we have the same at a different point so we get six values and we use those six values to 
let's say, get the initial orbit. There are different initial orbit termination methods, but they mostly work on different number of iterations and trying to remove other possibilities and trying to see how much transfer time is there between the two observed values. For example, my object, uh, for example, has traveled from one point to another in six hours and it's a low Earth orbit. So we can say that ah, it has made two revolutions something. So the result that I get using the initial orbit will be a result which will be for two or more revolutions. So we try to limit the number of possibilities that we have for the orbits because we will have multiple uh, possibilities. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. If we consider objects in the low Earth orbit, uh, there's... The atmosphere is quite dense, so the cross-section area of the orbit, you know, plays a major role in determining the trajectory because a larger cross-section, of course, slows it down and you know it disintegrates. Uh, and I'm assuming any, for example, if it's an active satellite, then of course one knows what the attitude can be, and we know it's you know it's completely intact, you know the structure and can estimate. But what about space debris? How do you how do you do that? Uh, for LEO objects or LEO debris, uh, we have multiple scenarios. For example, some of the people are also doing attitude determination or let's say try to find out the tumbling rate of the debris objects in the LEO uh, objects. And they try to do this using light curves or using laser ranging. So we are using different type of sensors to get different types of data. So different kind of surfaces reflect light differently. And some of them, for example, bigger in size or more reflective uh, objects are going to give us different results. So using the light curves, we can try to find out, okay, that this is the rate of rotation or if it is reflecting this much light, then it will be this type of material. Wow, that is so cool. So you're basically bouncing off laser beams from the Earth? Yes, yes, we are doing this. From the observatories, we have some cool pictures of the Zimmerwald Observatory. I think if you go to the IU website, you'll definitely find a picture. I think one of my colleagues took it, where you will see a green-colored laser shooting from the observatory dome into the sky. Yeah. Wow, this is this is so cool. This is so interesting. I mean, attitude determination, you know, this whole uh, astrodynamics, aerodynamics or orbital mechanics, whatever we call it. I think this is hands down the sexiest part of science, uh, part of space, because it's so cool. <laughs> that is the reason I got attracted to it so much. And I have been running after it since. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I totally get it. I mean, space bug, you know, once it bites you, uh, there's no turning back. Absolutely get that. So since you, since you mentioned your um, that you know uh, let let's talk a little bit about your journey maybe because you did a bachelor's in aerospace engineering and then you did uh, your master's again space related master's at ISAE and then you're also the PhD and you did all of these uh, one after the other. So how important is getting a PhD or a master to pursue a career in uh, in astrodynamics? Um, I would say that you can pursue a career uh, in astrodynamics even after the master's. But for me, it was, for example, uh, let's say the hunger for learning more, the hunger for research. Uh, that's what I would call it, because even my professors and uh, let's say my thesis head at Canes, where I did my master's thesis, was somebody who looked at me and someone who was coming on the weekends to look at the results. Oh, what happened with my models or the gravity field models? Oh, what kind of perturbations do I get? Why do I get these kind of orbits? And he saw me once and he was like, okay. <laughs> so the next time I saw him in office and he was like, okay, I, I know you like space too much. So, And then that's why I shared with him when I got this position uh, and I was running after orbit determination so I would say if you really want to learn something it's better that you spend some time in research rather than jumping straight into industry at least for astrodynamicists or so on I would say that if you spend some time in research try to spend some time with the problems and how you can solve them. That is going to really give you a new perspective on when you're trying to solve problems in real life, for example, to get results faster, because you will know already that this is something that is going to work and this is something that is not going to work. Because that attitude is something that you need 
before you are solving astrodynamics problems in real life. But it really depends on how much hunger you have or, yeah, for orbital mechanics and so on. Yeah, and I have been very hungry. <laughs> wow, that's, that's so cool. And this uh, puts things into perspective because often my advice to people who want to pursue a career in space is to, you know, after the undergrad, try to get your hands dirty, try to work in a, in the industry or somewhere or any kind of institution and then look for your master's. But then, but then maybe for astrodynamics, this is per, perhaps the path. That's interesting. Yeah. So again, you know, space situational, so astrodynamics and all this, uh, you know, tracking space debris or space objects, all the laser ranging, this all kind of comes under space situational awareness, which is a very broad umbrella term, you know, very much like, uh, I don't know, like AI, artificial intelligence, because it encompasses so many things, neural networks, I don't know, machine learning, a lot of these things. So what uh, all areas or what really constitutes space situational awareness? So space situational awareness uh, will comprise of uh, the elements where you try to track objects. So there will be surveys where you try to see whatever you see in the sky. For example, basically all the debris that you can uh, identify. And then again, try to compute their initial orbits so you know that which of these orbits uh, are known, which of these are new orbits. And then next will be try to know more about the kind of objects that are there in these orbits and how they are moving there and how these orbits are changing over time. And that will give you, for example, an overview of how the whole environment changes over time, over months, over years, over days. So it comprises of a lot of things. So there will be people who will be, for example, working on radars or, let's say, trying to set up optical telescopes to try to see space debris. There'll be people who will be observers doing night shifts, trying to see things. There will be people who will be writing softwares in the observatories, trying to do the pre-processing. There will be people who will be doing initial orbit termination, people like me. And then again, there will be people who will be working with the light curves and try to find the attitude of something or try to find how something is moving. So, And then there will be people who will be, let's say, I did some part of it, but try to maintain the catalog try to update the orbits with time. And there'll be people who will be working with numbers over time, how all these orbits are evolving over time. So it's, I mean, when I talk about this, it, it seems like there are a lot of people, but there's a joke inside the space debris community that the community is actually very small, that you talk to two people and you talk to them about someone and you are definitely going to find a common contact between you and the other person. So it's it's sadly not that big a community as it should be considering how things are changing with space debris. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with the insane number of constellations, satellite constellations that are being planned. And nowadays there is a near collision almost every week or every other week. <laughs> so we're all playing kind of space dodgeball. <laughs> Um, trying to prevent all this. So uh, how do you think all this will pan out, right? So if we consider space debris, uh, Kessler syndrome, anybody Googling space debris, they would come across this term Kessler syndrome. Uh, so do you think we are, we might approach this or, uh, yeah, do you, do you think the way the whole industry is headed, we might, you know, skip this crazy, insane phase? Because right now, like, for example, there's a copy orbits, you know, they're trying to map provide better analytics, better intel to satellite manufacturers. There's also a lot of companies trying to do active space debris removal. So in light of all these things, how do you think this will play out? Um, I would say that we are still going slow. When I look at the whole space industry and how we are progressing, uh, if we look at the plots, uh, they are pretty famous plots. You can find them at ESA or at NASA websites where you see the number of space objects uh, over the years and how we see how it will pan out over time. And you will see a kind of exponential increase 
over the next two or three decades. So if so, I would say this decade and the next decade are very critical, especially this one. So if we are not working towards active debris removal, or for example, uh, yeah, active debris removal is what we need because everyone wants to take care of their assets. I mean, okay, there's money involved, so everyone wants to save their satellite. They want their services to be not affected. But at the same time, there will be a time when everyone is not availing the services, but there, there will be more dirt. Let's say things are going to get dirty in space. So if within a decade we are not putting policies on the paper and with people's heads and with the satellites, then, yeah, it is going to get very hard. I am not sure if we are going to get as bad as the Kessler syndrome says, because that will be a pity uh, looking at uh, how we are developing things now. But I would say that this should be the priority this is where the money should be going. This is where people should be going at the moment. And sadly, this is not what we see now. That's too bad. Yeah, of course. I mean, anything in space historically has also been driven either by political will or a business case. So hopefully one of them will <laughs> come and kick in and then prevent this. Uh, but, but that's a very short timeline. I mean, in a decade is, is very small. I would say in a decade, things or let's say in the next two decades they're going to there's going to be a lot of increase wow. because it's going to get harder and harder in the next four or five decades is is something which will be let's say irreversible so the time to act is let's say one or two decades we we don't have much wow wow that's uh Okay, that's not good as somebody <laughs> as somebody who's who's uh, part of the whole upstream industry building satellites and contributing to the space debris. Uh that's not good to hear. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, but but I I see a lot of satellite manufacturers also um actively thinking about it, you know. They're thinking of um either putting a tiny uh, either using the onboard propulsion system onboard satellite propulsion system to deorbit at the end of life or deploying some sort of uh, drag sails drag sails have been demonstrated already a long time ago right there's nothing new in spite of these measures do you still think it's it's going to be quite you know quite uh, bad or quite dirty as you said in the next two decades as in do you think the satellite manufacturers would not really act on this um i would say that we need a strong incentive to work. We need to be forced to do something. And in space, it, it's mostly business. We, we mean business. So when things are going to get a bit dirty, that's when people will think that it is actually good business that we should invest money in making things more clean. That's why I said things will get a bit dirty uh, until people realize, until there's that incentive, until there's this force that is pushing people towards making things more clean. And like you said that, yes, there are a lot of people trying to do uh, end-of-life disposals. But when you look at the numbers, the percentages are still not very good. When you look at how many percentage of operators actually tried and how many of them actually, uh, let's say, uh, could get their satellite disposed with the right propulsion, the numbers are still low. I mean, not all of them, not all the people who are trying to do this are able to do this. And not everyone is even trying. Let's say, I would say less than 50% are trying. And less out from those less than 50% maybe half are failing and this is something that, that that is there in the public reports so there was this report that i was looking at uh let's say repeatedly when i was working on my uh phd thesis and also when i was working with another master thesis student at okapi so you can look at the plots and the numbers it's all public 
you can go to the websites, you can go to the ESA websites, you'll find the space environment reports. I think they update it like every year. So just go there and read and you will get to know how things are. I am not exaggerating anything. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I did look at, uh, you know, you just do an image search of space debris and there are so many, there's a lot of visual evidence right there. But, uh, but yeah, wow. That's, uh, it's, it's a bad metric. I mean, less than 50% of satellite manufacturers actually give a damn about this is, uh, is not good. <laughs> That's crazy. What's also interesting is how the whole, the attitude, I think, towards space sustainability or space debris is quite different across geographies. You must have read this, um, the Starlink license is being cancelled by France recently. I think it was last week or this week. Yeah, I have not been, for example, I haven't been following it, but Starlink anyway has been pretty interesting because of uh, other reasons. Yeah. Why do you find Starlink interesting, if I may ask? I mean, first of all, as an astronomer, or when I was, for example, between the astronomers in Bern, uh, it was something that was disturbing the night sky. That is a way of putting it. For example, the night sky will not be the same or is not the same with Starlink there. And also, it's adding let's say, some sort of noise when we are trying to track objects. We just have more noise or let's say we can get it confused with others. And at the same time, we have a big number of satellites in orbits which are already densely populated. And there has been a lot of conjunctions like that the Starlink satellites have had. I would say with a lot of other satellites. So even though we are trying to do the maneuvers and, or for example, with time, when we look at the collision probability, it decreases, but just to have these many number of conjunctions and have this number of satellites in a densely populated area, it just doesn't ease the things. It doesn't ease the situation. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so speaking of, I mean, of course, these explicitly these two were the reasons why uh, actually the, the French Supreme Court or some highest court, court essentially cancelled the licenses. You know, one is uh, a hindrance to astronomical observations from ground and also contribution to space debris. But speaking of the first one, uh, which is hindering astronomical observations, if you look at terrestrial telescopes, they're already located quite far away from uh, 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 from cities or, you know, human de dwellings because of the light pollution. So would it be like a logical next step? You know, we've taken the observatories away from the cities because there's too much light pollution and now there are too many satellites. So how, I mean, we can also move these observatories from ground to space, right? Like, of course, not a James Webb Space Telescope or not like a, another dozen of uh, Hubbles, but maybe smaller satellites. Do you think that would be sufficient for astronomy? Yeah, that is something that is in work, I would say. There are some people who are trying to do this. And this is something which will come up in the next few years. There are people working on space telescopes. And yeah, we are going to get space debris observations from space. But again, I would say that things are still moving a bit slow. Because when we talk about building big networks of telescopes or radars somewhere, then building things in space or sending things or telescopes in space is also going to take some time. And this is just the part when we are trying to track and monitor them over time. This is, for example, we are not at a point where we are trying to do active debris removal or where we, where everyone is following, for example, the end of life disposal uh, rules that we try to set. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, only time will tell how it's uh, it's gonna pan out. Oh, another question regarding the space debris. So, for air traffic, we have air traffic controllers, and they're all uh, there's an air traffic controller network, and it's quite localized, and you know. 
doesn't really matter because we have planes, we have pilots speaking different languages, planes, you know, from different makers and so, but we are still quite able to regulate the whole civilian space quite well. Uh, is it, first of all, technologically, is it feasible? And also maybe politically or, uh, I don't know, legally, is it feasible to have some sort of a space controller network similar to the air traffic control we have right now? I would say that is one of the biggest challenges to have something which works, for example, internationally, which is also something that is happening now when it comes to space debris disposal or, for example, what to do with space debris. Or there are some ideas, for example, uh, which suggest that we can use the space debris to create something new. Uh, so the space assets are, for example, always, uh, there is something interesting when it comes to space law and space assets of different com- uh, different companies, different countries, governments. So this is something that comes in space and defense uh, for most of the countries. So I would say that we still are, let's say, not there. We are not there. So it's not going to come up, uh, I would say, in the next few months or in the next year or so on. But there are people talking about this. So this is needed for space debris, but this is also needed uh, like for outer space uh, assets and other things that we need to come up with proper space laws and rules where, yeah, and everyone following them, not like what is uh, the situation at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, space law, like all international law, is, is quite tricky to, to enforce. So, of course, um, yeah. But but yeah, let's see. I mean, this is, uh, I guess, one of the, um, the great filters, perhaps, for humanity. <laughs> yeah. So, um, also, you have quite a bit of an international experience. You know, you've, you've done your, um, you briefly interned at CNES. You worked on the GNSS processing and now you're with a German startup and you also uh, did your PhD at uh, the University of Bern, which is again in Switzerland, the German part of Switzerland, but still Switzerland. So how do you see the work? How are the work cultures uh, across these geographies different? Um, I would say that the journey has been quite interesting and it's always uh, it always amazes me to see that how different people have approach to do things differently. For example, um, I would say that in Kness, uh, things were, uh, let's say, more um, relaxed when it was, uh, when we compare it to, for example, um, the Swiss university uh, environment or the research environment, I would say. So, but I would tell you something that is consistent everywhere is the hunger of the researchers, the craziness of the researchers or the scientists or the engineers who are always staying uh, in the evenings to see the results and to see actually that, yeah, this is what is actually happening. This is something which is universal. So, you talk to anybody and you talk about the feeling that you are trying to crack a problem and you just want to see that how it is going to get solved and what is happening because this is not what the result should look like with a given model. And yeah, it doesn't matter how many holidays everyone has in a year or how many work hours <laughs> each culture has, but that scientist or that engineer is going to stay there to look at those results. So, yeah, this is something consistent between all the cultures. Wow, that's 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 so fabulous. I mean, it's um, when you're so passionate, I guess, about work, then there is no work and personal life difference. It's it's all one single passion that's driving you. So that's uh, that's great. That's so cool. Uh, so do you, do you speak French or did you have to learn to speak French or German? Yeah, I speak French. I learned French a bit before I went to France and then I learned French in France as well. And I became almost fluent in French la la. at the end of my <laughs> master's, though I would still, I yeah, I still call myself mediocre, but 
in a job interview uh, with someone, uh, let's say a manager who spoke to me in French, uh, the whole interview was in French. And he told me that I should change in my CV, uh, that my level is not intermediate, that <laughs> I can speak French. <laughs> I never did it. Amazing. <laughs> but my position, <laughs> but my position uh, changed because when I was in Bern, Bern is bilingual, let's say. So I survived there because, yeah, I could at least get my official documents in French. Uh, so, but I started learning German uh, in Bern. I did not, for example, get too far with German. I'm still uh, in the beginning levels, but I did enjoy it. I picked up some words and phrases in the dialect, though, because that's the thing in Switzerland. It's it's not exactly that language spoken in that very manner in the place. That's why it's a bit tricky for a person to learn that language inside Switzerland because the dialect is still different. So either you learn the dialect, you speak the dialect, and you, yeah, that's it. Or when you learn a language, then you try to practice it. People will switch it, but it's not like staying in Germany and speaking German. So it helps uh, a lot here because, yeah, I still use some words from the dialect and some French <laughs> words when I came to Germany. And yeah, it was pretty funny because <laughs> I tried to talk to people and the person was looking at me and I was like, what did I say wrong? <laughs> I was doing this every day in Bern. And yeah, but yeah, now I would say that I, yeah. I'm getting more comfortable with German and I try not to switch to English or any other language unless I yeah, absolutely have to. That's, that's so cool. I mean, you seem to have an amazing flair for learning languages. Yeah, I, I like languages. And I also think that we have different experience when we actually learn the language. I saw this in France. And I really loved my time uh, during my master's and in Toulouse. And yeah, or in French part of Switzerland, whenever I want, uh, like, let's say I wandered to Montreux or somewhere near Matterhorn and I'm talking to people in French and I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes. Uh, yeah, that's why I, so there's always a difference when you can speak the language, then you can connect more and you just feel a part of, this new culture but I would say that still you have uh, this thing inside you that you have two cultures or in my case many cultures inside you now I don't know what people would call me they'll call me Swiss in some ways French <laughs> in some ways and maybe now I'm becoming a bit German uh, yeah with some things yeah yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's the beauty of it all, right? You know, moving to a different country, living in a different culture, uh, that's, that's the whole experience. And language is, of course, the biggest part of the whole uh, immersive experience. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely great. Unfortunately for me, I live in Berlin, and every time I speak in my very bad German, you know, people uh, think they're doing me a favor and switch to English. <laughs> So, you know, and sometimes I think I should really move to a, I don't know, a very remote godforsaken part of Germany and just stay there where not a single soul speaks English. So within a month, I'm, I'm, my survival instincts kick in and I'm fluent. I, I don't know. I've never tried to speak French. Uh, I, I guess the only word I know is oui. And I'm pretty sure I'm not pronouncing that right. <laughs> but, but yeah, German is, uh, has been quite an interesting language for me as well. But the space community is quite international, right? Did you ever have to um, speak the local language, or was was it English? Was English always mainstream? Um, I would say that France, because I've been, I was in Cannes, uh, and even in general, um, you mostly speak and yeah, uh, talk, even work in French. But I talked with, for example, my supervisor in English because uh, there were things that were at stake and I did not want to speak French uh, regarding those things. But I still, for example, uh, learned a lot of technical words uh, while being there. 
Um, so I would say in Canes, the working language is French. So, but it's a government uh, space agency, so I wouldn't expect anything different. Uh, in Switzerland, uh, in Bern, because there are more Swiss Germans in Bern than, for example, French-speaking people or more German-speaking people than French in Bern. So uh, people would mostly talk in German unless, for example, there are people who, are, who cannot talk in German or do not know that much German and then the conversations will be in English. But most of the documents will be in English. But since, uh, let's say... Uh, before I started my PhD, a couple of years before that, things were still in German. Let's say the institute seminars were still in German. When I was there, there were some guest lecturers uh, and there was a person, a guest lecturer who was, let's say, a colleague of someone who won the Nobel Prize for physics that year a couple of years ago, someone who had worked at the University of Bern. That person gave a presentation about exoplanets in German. So there were some guest lectures in German as well. So most of the undergrad studies are in the local languages and people talk to each other in local languages. But in the institutes or where, for example, there are some international people, uh, you would speak uh, in English and work in English. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's good. Nice, interesting. So Circling back a little bit again uh, to your work, how does your typical day look like? So is it filled with a lot of simulations? What kind of softwares do you use? What kind of, do you use a lot of programming languages? Um, I use a couple of programming languages and the work day would be, let's say, um, so I would say maybe none of my work days are the same. Wow. I can't say that this day looks exactly like yesterday or this is exactly what I'm going to do tomorrow. So there's going to be some difference because you are trying to solve problems, trying to create new things or trying to, for example, develop software. Uh, and then there are always new things. You always try to improve things, make things better. So I would say that most of the work days are uh, consisting of either orbital termination or some other projects that we are working on. For example, in Okapi, we are also working on different projects. So it could be working, let's say, for a given project on one day or working yeah, on a given task on one day and the next day moving on to a different task that needs to be done. Okay, wow, wow, cool, interesting, very interesting. So how many people are at Okapi right now? Um, at the moment, okay, keeps changing. I have to make sure that I don't tell a wrong number. <laughs> I totally get that. I mean, I also... I think it's 14 at the moment, 14 or 15, yeah. Wow, that's, that's a big number. I mean, from the last time I spoke with uh, Christina, yeah, you guys have grown quite a bit. Nice to see that. Yeah. Uh, we are going further. Wow, yeah. wow, that's great to see. Yeah, and I absolutely get it. At a startup, uh, I'm always counting. You know, every time someone asks me how many people in your company, I'm like, wait a second. It was it was 15 <laughs> last Monday, but then we hired a bunch of people. <laughs> so it's always changing. But but yeah. So what's uh, what's your team at Okapi like? Uh, what kind of geographies they come from? What kind of backgrounds do they have? Um, I would say most of my colleagues are German. So, except, um, ac yeah, actually, I'm the only person, I'm the only Indian, yeah, I'm the only non-German on the team the moment. But I, yeah, but I hardly feel it because the environment is super nice and super fun. So, I just don't feel, for example, someone as... With an odd one out. I absolutely get that. I mean, I think it's it's the case with the space industry because it's so close-knit and everybody working in the space industry is so passionate about space and that's what connects us. A lot of my German friends, for example, have more in common with me, you know, who's, who's not even from Europe because we are both passionate about the same thing. So I, I totally get that. I think space people are like a cult. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would prefer to call it a family. Yeah. <laughs> but 
<laughs> but yeah but yeah secretly you know it's a cult <laughs> yeah okay cool so what kind of uh, backgrounds do they have educational backgrounds or uh, technical backgrounds um, most of them uh, for example have done aerospace engineering uh, from tu braunschweig so yeah and for example in case of christina it will be uh, more towards business but most of my colleagues and people in the science team especially uh, yeah uh, are people uh, who are engineering people yeah and very space people yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> true true so in the beginning of the podcast you mentioned that it's advisable especially when when pursuing astrodynamics it's always good to spend as much time at an educational institution or pursuing a master or these kind of degrees to get as much knowledge as possible but is that a really hard requirement is it possible for somebody with just a bachelor degree to you know kind of jump into it and learn things on the go um yeah it's absolutely possible for someone after bachelor to jump into for example tasks at hand and learn about astrodynamics uh but i would say that the environment uh really matters uh that you're doing it i don't know as a bachelor thesis or you are doing it for example for a project for the company or so on because when you're working uh let's say in a company the requirement will be to get things done i don't know as fast as possible maybe for example to find the solution for a given problem and maybe uh you cannot spend that much time with a problem that you can spend uh in research or for example in a student project that's one reason why i said this uh and in fact Uh, but i would say that many people differ on this so maybe people who are uh, in research or have been in research are biased uh, <laughs> towards this but there was yeah the same thing one of the professors at university of bern he told me the same that the time we get for example during phd years is something that we are never going to get even after phd for example in postdocs or otherwise because in phd we have a lot of time to go deep into the problem and it's it's just amazing like you can just yeah you can absorb everything and yeah you can get a lot of faces of the problem and it's it's just different but it definitely depends on what a person wants to do are they invested in something that much that they would want to spend that much time solely on something like this i was someone who was very invested and i always wanted to do orbit termination so for me it was clear that yeah i wanted to spend time with this problem that's interesting insight thanks for that so by the way how did you develop this interest in attitude determination was it from your undergrad days or you know when were you first exposed to this um i would say it was in my bachelor days yeah it was in, in my undergrad uh days so i was always interested in space uh, even as a child and there were things that were even remotely related to space that would interest me and i was uh for example i would like the gravitational laws or those uh, kind of things in school and yeah then in undergrad i worked uh, for example uh, for maneuvers and orbit termination of a given spacecraft that we tried to use to remove debris so it was an active debris removal project um that we proposed uh in a competition in an international competition so it was during that time that i realized that this is something that i like the best and this is what i want to do so i was yeah continuously going after orbit termination but i got let's say a sneak peek when i was uh in 11th or 12th grade because during that time we learn about 
uh, things like gravitational laws and how they change, how gravity changes with time and how to compute orbits. And I have always been interested in orbital geometry as well. So without knowing it, I have been always interested in things that I was going to use in orbit determination. So I liked those things and the combination of those things is what orbital mechanics is basically. Cool. Wow. Wow. That's uh, so you're a physics person and then, and then it was a natural transition (laughs) for you. Yeah. A physics and a maths person. Yeah, yeah. That, that the second part is very important because I also absolutely loved physics, but for some reason I could not digest so much of math to do to pull off orbit determination. So yeah, I just uh, here I ended up just in absolute fascination of ADCS, but not touching it, not going anywhere near it because the math is too much <laughs> for me. Cool. I'm glad you. Yeah, I'm glad you're doing this. Great. We all know that we are absolutely not doing enough to. Uh, combat the whole space debris problem and ensure sustainability in space. So what do you think should be the immediate action taken by the whole community or the whole world, let's say? Who do you think, like, for example, uh, do you think the governments should be doing this? The private, the satellite manufacturers should be doing this? You know, should we be, what exactly should we be doing? Um, I would say that we need the government, uh, we need action from the governments and international players when it comes to, for example, whoever is involved in space. And we don't need just more, let's say, dialogues. We need more action because dialogue is what has been for a long time. So we need quick action. We need to make rules. We need to stick to them. And yeah, we need to start acting. That is what we need. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Humanity is a very chatty species, so our dialogues can take quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we should be putting more resources into monitoring, into removal, into mitigation, basically everything. Yeah, everything. Yeah. And we should, yeah, we should make this a priority now. Everyone. Yeah, hope uh, hope all the fellow contributors to the space debris will keep it in mind. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. And and yeah, and uh, do the needful. This was a very interesting chat, Harleen. By the way, do you read any space science fiction or watch any space sci-fi? Um, I would say no. I do not read much of sci-fi, but I watch occasionally but my expectations are very high. So I, <laughs> when there is something that, that I just think is not possible, so at that point I'll be like, oh no, just try to spend a bit more time, try to invest a bit more when you're trying to do something, yeah, so cool. So, but yeah, so I watch sci-fi movies occasionally, but I do not read a lot of uh, science fiction. So my reading is, uh, yeah, it's quite diverse, actually, but no, less of uh, sci-fi. What's the movie or a series that came closest to your experience, expectations? Um, I would say that I liked the movie Gravity a lot. So that is something that I really liked. And that is something that I would still use to try to explain how space debris would affect a given problem so i really like that movie so yeah and interstellar of course but i would say there were some parts where um let's say it could have been better but a lot of things uh, were very well done in interstellar so i really enjoyed watching uh, both of these movies Wow. Could you care to explain which are these parts in Interstellar that could have been done better? Uh, For example, um, when you try to show the entry part near the black hole, because that part should have been more intense uh, from my point of view. You mean from a cinematic experience or from the... Ah uh, no, from physics or from more how things would affect a spacecraft at the time of, for example, 
how everything will be changing and will a person or will a spacecraft will actually survive that kind of a force oh okay yeah yeah absolutely well yeah i've never thought of that i mean i thought hey you just waltz into a black hole and then ta-da <laughs> but of course you probably won't be alive so hmm, interesting and probably the very yeah. definition of consciousness changes yeah but we yeah but we needed that for the movie so yeah it's okay but they did great when it comes to images and yeah trying to visualize how everything would look and hey let's not forget that they try to give us the black holes image there yeah i mean it's still our obviously it was one of the it's it's much needed even though it kind of stretches the the whole physics a little bit and takes uh, some a, yeah. a lot of cinematic freedom but but i believe such movies are spe- are very important to you know engage the population yeah. the public yeah. in science hmm, that's cool so i'm glad uh, at least there are some movies that you approve of <laughs> next time i'm going to run a lot of my books or plots or anything i'm going to watch i'm going to run it by you and see how much it scores <laughs> on uh, a scale that would be good uh no <laughs> oh you should always ask an expert you know i mean you're one of the experts so i'd love to ask you yeah <laughs> uh, thank you Yeah but I am not watching uh, those many sci-fi movies myself so yeah yeah i mean it's probably sci-fi for you you know that kind of uh, insane um physics for you on an everyday basis so you probably don't need space sci-fi <laughs> yeah yeah cool cool awesome yeah but it's, it's been a really fun conversation hardly and thank you so much for giving your time on a sunday thanks to you and it has been really fun So if space enthusiasts or students or space debris activists want to get in touch with you what's the best way to do so Um I would say LinkedIn would be the best way yeah uh, they can write me there and I will yeah definitely get back to them That's great great and thanks again Harleen for your time and it's been a really fun conversation Thank you Rachna it was a pleasure <laughs>